0: Welcome to the Judgment Call Podcast, a podcast where I bring together some of the most curious minds on the planet, risk takers, adventurers, travelers, investors, entrepreneurs, and simply mind bogglers. To find all episodes of this show, simply go to Spotify, iTunes, or YouTube, or go to our website, judgmentcallpodcast.com. If you like this show, please consider leaving a review on iTunes or subscribe to us on YouTube. This episode of the Judgment Call Podcast is sponsored by Mighty Travels Premium. Full disclosure, this is my business. What we do at Mighty Travels Premium is to find the airfare deals that you really want. Thousands of subscribers have saved up to 95% in the airfare. Those include $150 round-trip tickets to Hawaii for many cities in the U.S., or $600 life-led tickets in business class from the U.S. to Asia, or $100 business class life tickets from Africa round trip all the way to Asia. In case you didn't know, about half the world is open for business again and accepts travelers. Most of those countries are in South America, Africa, and Eastern Europe. To try out Mighty Travels Premium, go to mightytravels.com/mtp or if that's too many letters for you, simply go to mtp the number 4 and the letter u.com to sign up for your 30-day free trial. Peter, thanks for coming on the podcast. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me on. Thanks for taking the time. I appreciate it. Hey, uh, you are one of the foremost experts to a topic that has been vexing me and also other guests here on the podcast. And that is, we feel like there is this macroeconomic view out there in the stock market that can't really decide are we going towards a period of deflation, Inflation, or maybe stagflation, something that is a little bit in between those two extremes. What is your opinion, and where where do you take that knowledge? How do you read the tea leaves?
1: Well, first, I, I like to break down inflation uh, among different things because when people hear inflation, it's either either or, and but inflation is a lot more nuanced. We have services inflation, we have uh, goods inflation. And consumers, they spend on, on one or the other, and a lot of, you know, most obviously spend on both. So if you look at the service side, of, of at least to the U.S. economy, but you know, overseas as well, uh, we've seen persistent pre-COVID services inflation of 25 to 3% per year. And a lot of that is rents, medical care, insurance, tuition, just things that seem to always go up every single year. Uh, you go to a movie theater, every single year there's a price increase. You go buy concert tickets, every single year there's a price increase. And and that is pretty sticky. On the good side, uh, the offset to that services inflation has sort of been goods disinflation or deflation. And all you have to do is look at technology. Technology is one of the greatest deflationary forces in the history of the world. And that's not something that's new. That's been going on for centuries and every new uh, progression in, in, in human um, uh, uh, achievement has been led by technology in some fashion that leads to more efficiency and usually a decline in prices. But certainly since the, the early 80s when technology w- via the PC really started to take uh, center stage in a lot of our lives, uh, we know that we've been able to get more sort of computing power for less cost. But even aside from the direct technology uses, just production just generally becomes more efficient over time. And usually uh, that helps to limit or even reduces the price of goods. So what we've had post-COVID is uh, on the service side, services inflation has decelerated because people, of course, have, have spending less money on services, and of course, also on the rent side since housing is a very important component of the services side of of inflation well we've seen big rent declines in some of the big states and and a big uh states in the u.s uh, some big cities i mean san francisco new york chicago uh, and that has offset uh continued rent increases in other uh, second-tier cities and also in the suburbs but on the flip side we've started to see an increase in the prices of goods which is a different landscape than we've seen as I mentioned, years prior. And a lot of that has to do with supply chains that got turned upside down because of COVID and also rising transportation costs where every single good that's manufactured in the world ends up on a plane, a boat, uh, uh, a railroad, or a truck. And if those transportation costs are going up on top of uh, the rising costs of producing goods, because it's harder to get parts to it and uh, the rising cost of labor, and, and we know that COVID has turned upside down um, assembly lines and, and, and employee um, staffing and so on, that, uh, that all combines for a rise in goods prices. So the question is, is the rise in goods prices so-called transitory, which we hear that word a lot from, from central bankers and they believe that it is, uh, or is it something that will be more longer lasting and with the vaccine rollout and a resumption of spending on services, are we going to see an, now an upward reflection, uh, inflection in services inflation? And when you combine the both pieces, are we going to start to see higher levels of inflation for just more than just a transitory period of time, but something that is, is more longer lasting? And I'm in that camp. Uh, I think it's not just a few quarter event. I think it's something that will last into next year Uh, now supply chains will at some point normalize so the goods pressure pricing pressure will will uh, ease somewhat but uh, i i think that will take longer than people think and um i think that while i'm not looking for high inflation i'm looking for higher inflation and in the context of a world of interest rates that are very low higher inflation matched up with very low interest rates is not a good combination, and, and that's what I'm keeping my eye out for.
0: It's really interesting how you break that down. When we talk about inflation, I think everyone is so focused on the CPI measurement, right? It's been around for a long time, but obviously has a lot of flaws, and there's a lot of inputs into this common denominator. And we know that David Rosenberg was 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 telling me, you know, there there is this major drop in in, in as you just said in the service economy, so. And oil prices are down, so I mean they obviously be, play a big part in what consumers spend. So this is a big drop right now. Unless you say, the products prices are up; they are definitely seeing the stress right now.
1: Well, you mentioned oil well, prices, well, where commodity prices have also been an area that we're beginning to see uh, a, a big move upward. Food prices are now at multi-year highs. Even energy prices, you know, oil back to sixty dollars, and that's the highest we've seen in a while. Uh, the CRB raw industrials index, which captures uh, a lot of raw material prices, uh, a lot of which are not necessarily traded on, on markets but uh, uh, are, are key components of the, of, of the supply chain, uh, that's at um, the highest level in about eight years. So the commodity side also is seeing price pressures as well. And you know, getting back to energy, you know, price that most people see every day, gasoline prices, you know, they're rising as well.
0: One thing that I was always curious, and you, you broke it down earlier, so I found this really interesting, is one part of inflation seems to be we see it more in regulated economies, right? So we, we see the demand eventually growing and then the supply can't hold um, track with what's going on on the demand side. So we see higher prices very naturally. So it happens in service industries. You know, we we can't just build housings where your supply restricted, say, San Francisco, Los Angeles, you mentioned New York, you mentioned those earlier. So naturally, prices have to come up and they jump quite a bit. I mean, in San Francisco, we jumped 100% over the last couple of years, and then we went down 50%. So there seems to be some reverse to the mean going on. And it seems healthcare and, you know, universities, they also jumped in price in pre-COVID because we Mm -hmm. see there is heavily regulated industries and demand simply outstrips supply and it doesn't change. What would you think? If, and in China, we saw the opposite, right? So we saw there was, there was no real major impact on bringing product into uh, the U.S. from China. So we saw prices dropping as more and more Chinese manufacturers came online over the last 20 years. Do you believe, and that's obviously a wide-ranging question, if we get rid of most of the regulation that we now think is just red tape, it doesn't really help us, would we see a much more tame inflation scenario than what we see right now?
1: I, I believe so, because there would be more market forces that would sort of create its own equilibrium uh, that is not artificial. You know, you talked about how, you know, you look at U.S. housing. Well, Fannie and Freddie were a main draw. Fannie and Freddie and very low interest rates for too long, two, you know, the central bank and Fannie and Freddie, the two government entities, led to the housing inflation that we saw in the mid-2000s. What are we seeing now? We're seeing housing inflation again. We're seeing annual home price increases of 10 percent plus. So yeah, in some markets, it's state or, or, or city type restrictions on the supply of housing that certainly adds to that inflation. But it's also Fannie and Freddie that are now controlling a huge chunk of the U.S. housing market, obviously low rates. So yeah, the government has caused housing price inflation, which prices out a lot of people. Uh, and and, and those, particularly first-time home buyers that have to save up for uh, a down payment, and while uh, lower mortgage rates helps to mitigate somewhat that rise in headline prices, uh, it still creates a big distortion. You look at education. Well, the government basically runs a student loan industry in the U.S., and if you make the access to to credit too easy, uh, well, then it just gives the universities sort of free license to continue to raise prices four, five, six percent. Uh, then becomes then you need a bigger loan, and then they continue to raise prices. Then you need an even bigger loan, and it just becomes this self-fulfilling uh, prophecy. Then you talk about healthcare. Uh, we know that the U.S. government is a, a large payer uh, in in healthcare, and while Medicare and Medicaid reimbursement rates are kept artificially low, it's the government presence in the markets that is responsible for 20% annualized uh, increases in in insurance and uh, if the third party is paying for uh, a lot of the healthcare services and, and and medical supplies well then they have license to increase prices and I, the example i like to give in healthcare is so about 10 plus years ago i got lasik and lasik is pretty much private pay well you've seen over the last 20 years price declines in lasik because insurance companies aren't subsidizing it 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 is actually an area of healthcare that's free market. And I think that that is a a good example of of prices being kept in check. And even that go down over time, uh, where it seems like everything else in healthcare, uh, where insurance companies and and government rates are are involved, uh, prices only seem to inflate.
0: Yeah, I find that quite stunning. Because when you think about technology, the US is very price competitive be that internet services, be that actually devices like Apple. And I go to Malaysia a lot and the devices are the same. The internet prices for internet are similar. I mean, the connectivity is a little cheaper. But then I go to my favorite dentist there and it's about one-fourth, one-fifth of what it would be for instance for a new crown. And But the offices are brand new and, and everyone has like this 20-year-old. 20, no, not just 20 year old interns, but there's tons of doctors with tons of experience. And I feel I've been taking better care of than what I can get in San Francisco for instance. So for me, it's striking that price difference. Technology, it's the same, but healthcare, it's a huge difference between these two countries.
1: So a similar example, I, I was in Singapore the summer of 2019, and with my wife and my son, and my son had, um, was having this bad stomach ache, so we went to uh, a Raffles Medical Center in Singapore. And what do you see at the front desk? You see a price list of all of their services. It was like a menu. Yeah. You go into a restaurant, you see what they offer, and you see how much it costs. Uh, in the U.S., you go to a doctor's office, there's, there's no menu, there's no price list. Uh, so it was that that pricing transparency in Singapore that has dramatically limited the price increases relative to what we see in other regulated parts
0: of the world. Yeah. It brings me to that question. When we look at the that and a lot of people ascribe the crisis we are in so far or the, the, the impending doom that's how i talked about that with jim rogers he said there is the biggest crisis that he's ever seen is basically upon us not today but very soon and a lot of this is ascribed to the fed itself to the current fed president do you think it was really bad government policy that brought us to the state where a lot of people feel, well, we should better go into gold and silver instead of being with a dollar? Or do you think the passenger the, the Fed itself is basically like a passenger in a train that is kind of a runaway train and they don't really know what to do anymore?
1: Well, the, the train example is, also, is a good example. I like to give you the example where the Fed and other central bankers are the bartender behind the bar that are consistently handing out free drinks. And that those drinks are essentially uh, cheap money, uh, which turns into lo- loans and people borrow too much and, and, and they get drunk and, 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 me- and some get into accidents after driving too fast. Uh, you look at the history of the Fed uh, going back to 1913, uh, the purchasing power of a dollar in 1913 is, about, is worth about three to four cents today. So, the history of the Fed is to debase the currency, reduce its purchasing power, therefore reducing the standard of living of our people. Uh, when you think about the Fed, what they what do- But the standard do, of
0: living is much higher than in 1913, for instance.
1: Well, well it's higher in the sense that we, we get to enjoy uh, the advancements of life. But What I mean is the purchasing power of one's dollar buys you a lot less. So that's what I was referring yeah. to uh, in terms of that. I, I think what you're referring to is more of the quality of life is 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 much greater today because we we we've advanced as a society and we've allowed you know the average person to afford uh, our, um, you know a, a TV and an iPhone and 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 these low cost advancements of in life. But generally speaking, with central bankers, is that they, they sort of they they convince society to make a deal with the devil. Uh, what they do is they say, okay. I know you wanted to save up 20% for that house and that's going to take you a couple of years through you know, your income and, and, and savings and, but I'll make a deal with you. If I lower interest rates and that will lower your monthly payment, will you bring forward that purchase of the house because I'm going to make it uh, cheaper for you to afford those monthly payments? Uh, if I lower uh, the interest rate, uh, will you buy a car today? Instead of saving up tomorrow, so it it, it entices uh, the private sector to take well, and the government to take on more debt and to borrow to bring forward economic activity to today from tomorrow. So when I say the deal with the devil, meaning that it it encourages society, both public and private, to borrow and borrow and borrow. And when you look back the history uh, of of um, the, the post-1971 uh, net, uh, release from the, the tether to, to the price of gold, uh, we just you see the debt numbers that have just exploded. So you mentioned Jim Rogers. What he said, you know a lot of times he's referring to this extraordinary amount of debt that we've taken on as a society. And I like to say that we don't have normal economic cycles anymore. We have credit cycles. We have credit cycles that ebb and flow with the cost of money. And we know that money got tight in uh, 1999 into 2000. That was one of the triggers for the decline in the in the tech uh, bubble. Uh, we know money got easy, which then encouraged the housing bubble. Then money got tight, and that blew up. And then uh, post financial crisis, money has been easy for a while. And while uh, households delevered, a lot of that was mortgage related. Uh, businesses levered up, and we know uh, governments have levered up. So we are just uh, addicted to cheap credit uh, to sustain ourselves, and 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 now to the runaway train examples that you give, is that now that um, now that that locomotive has really speeded up uh, on, on the track, speeded up in the sense of taking on more and more debt. Uh, it's it's really going to be difficult and painful to slow that train down because that means uh, a period of delevering a period of less uh, credit but that means uh, slower growth that means and if that means higher interest rates that induces less credit because that's the that's the flip side when the fed raises rates it's trying to convince you to borrow less make the cost of borrowing a little bit more so you slow down the pace of borrowing. Well, you slowing down that locomotive would be raising interest rates making the cost of credit higher but that also risks blowing up the stock market which is addicted to cheap money. And we know the stock market and and credit markets are intertwined with economic activity. Uh, As opposed to, look at 1987, we had almost a 25% one-day decline in the stock market, but it really had no impact on the economy. Because back then, it was stock prices that really uh, reflected the economy and earnings, rather than, post-Greenspan, having the stock market and credit markets drive the economy.
0: Yeah, it's really fascinating. The way you put this and I think the 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 propensity to rein into uh, to low interest rate seems to be out the window right so we have a little crisis and the interest rate goes to zero then we have a slightly bigger crisis and it goes to minus I don't know what we hit minus 0.5 during COVID and it seems stunning to me do you think there is and we, we know that money, modern monetary theory right so it's a term that people put out there and say oh we, we can't be on the gold standard because it doesn't work for us anymore and they say well I kind of ask so why doesn't it work for us anymore right and then the question is well this is for economies that don't really grow but there's no technology so we actually have to finance this new growth and interestingly enough most of the time over a long term that self-fulfilling prophecy that we we say well we're going to take a loan out basically i have the interest rates too low for what it would be good Uh, that would be up to to debate obviously but it's a little too low and we we spent that money on loan so we we kind of create the self-fulfilling prophecy you better take that money and create something useful because if not we're going to be bankrupt an interesting thing is that the us never went bankrupt in the last 100 years maybe we will do now but so far whatever crisis we produce we seem to do way better than anyone else out there who is have much often much tighter monetary policies not all countries you know some are real banana republics but there's a lot of countries with very tight monetary um regimes like germany for instance who don't do so well in the growth part which in the end decides the fate of your economy right it's the real growth obviously that's the imaginary growth from too low interest rates minus the real interest um the, the real growth of the economy do you feel we should we should go back to and it sounds that way, too, much tighter policy, much higher interest rates would be much better for the country.
1: Well, I, I think there there's a, 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 a withdrawal process. Just as, as a heroin addict, uh, once they get off heroin, there's a very painful transition and withdrawal process. Uh, I think that we can't just spike interest rates. I, I think another way of, of and, and I'll get to sort of answering that question, is... You know there's this very simplistic central bank mentality uh even though a lot of them have phds is that low rates are good and if low rates are good even lower rates are better and if lower rates are better even lower rates are great and they just are under this assumption that the more they lower rates or the more money printing they do the more easing that is and i'm of the belief that uh over the last 10 plus years monetary policy has actually been restrictive and I'll explain why. Negative interest rates. Look at, look at what negative interest rates does to one's yield curve. Look at Europe. So it has horribly damaged the bank profitability in Europe. And 80 plus percent of the loans given to businesses in Europe are from the banking system, particularly small, medium sized businesses that don't have access to the capital markets. Well, well, if I'm a European bank And I have negative interest rates where I'm paying a penalty. Uh, I'm at the point where I'm now charging depositors and you've left me really no yield curve to, to gain a spread on. Well, while I may have some spread because the ECB is literally paying banks to give out loans, if that spread is relatively tight, I have to be tight on my lending standards. I have to be really careful to what extent I'm going to loan businesses, uh, loan money to businesses and households. So if I loan less, well, it's small and medium-sized businesses and, and, and certain households that are just don't have the same access to credit that companies, bigger companies do with capital markets. So that creates its own slower growth scenario. And I think that's what we've seen in Europe. Take Japan. The Japanese Bank Stock Index is down almost 90% in nominal terms from its peak in 1989. Nine zero percent. Well, we know the Bank of Japan has basically killed off the yield curve. Now they have negative interest rates on the short end. And the Peter, regional Peter, one banks... Thing, when,
0: when you talk about the yield curve, so that I understand it, say when the bank could still loan out, say, for 10% to whatever customer they want, right? Why can't they do it anymore? I don't fully understand that.
1: Well, they, they, they Well, if you're a, a, a low-grade uh, quality borrower, uh, a triple C rated company. Yeah, you may have to pay ten percent, but a bank is is also taking ex- a lot of risk to bring in that ten percent when they're dealing with a triple C credit, and uh, particularly after the Great Financial Crisis, we know banks aren't that aggressive when it comes to lending. Now that'll be a certain portion portion of one's loan book, but not many businesses can 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 grow paying 10% to, to their lenders. Uh, so there's, th- that's only- like- But
0: the Fed makes no instru- instructions, right? They, they basically say, you we, we, we wanna control how much you lend because it's the money creation, the biggest part of money creation, kind of like mortgages, that's the other good example, but businesses lo- business loans, or like credit card loans might be another huge portfolio and student loans, obviously. But the Fed doesn't really say you can't loan it out to even um, triple A to at 10% rate. So if the banking industry, comes together all the CEOs say oh you know what we don't make any money why don't we just loan out at 10% and then we make a ton of money to to the best borrowers even in the country why can't they do this why, and just oh. say well we don't make any money with the, with the with the low interest rate, so let's go up until they all a die out that you know you a know, lot of it's ahead. competition
1: <laughs> when you think about what and things that the, that the the fed does and central banks do in their lower rates is they they don't allow you to uh, they lower the risk-free rate. So yeah. then it becomes this self-fulfilling prophecy on the downside that you lower the risk-free rates almost nothing, and pension funds and insurance companies and investors and individuals and they, they need some yield, so they'll do anything for for yield above that risk-free rate. So yeah, if a bank sure. was yeah. was saying I'm gonna I'm gonna lend ten percent, well you'd have some lender out there that say that pri- that's not a bank that said, uh, yeah, come to me, I'll give it to you for eight. And then somebody else say, I'll give it to you for six, because even that is so far above that risk-free rate that there is a fight to lend money at anything above that risk-free rate. So it becomes uh, a a very competitive situation where banks, for some creditors, where there's not much competition to lend to a a low-grade credit at 10%, but for any Decent borrower generating cash flow, or even uh, a U.S. household that has a high FICO score, uh, there, there, there would be too much competition that would lower that lending rate.
0: So, but the the competition is always about the spread, right? So, if the Fed says our, our risk-free interest rate, right, I think that's what it's called, or that, that the rate that the Fed puts out as a number, I don't actually know how it's used the, the economy.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, it's five percent. Then the the competition would be about the Seven percent that it's being lent out to really great borrowers, right? So it's obviously spread that where most competition comes in, irrespective right. a, a of the the rate.
1: Yeah, a bank doesn't necessarily care what the absolute level of rates are. They just want to basically have a spread between where they borrow, whether that's from a depositor or from uh, a loan uh, that they take on, and what they can lend that money out. I mean, at the end of the okay. day, banks are still in, in in the spread business, amongst other, obviously, uh, parts of the business they have so if you if you lower the profit margin on their spread business, now that then it becomes difficult. That's why Japanese regional banks are are like literally dying away because most of their business is the spread business, whereas the bigger Japanese banks uh, they have capital markets business uh, and they have a lot of business outside Japan that they can they can offset and mitigate the pressures on their their Japanese domestic lending business. But my point was is that if the banks are a key cog in the wheel of, of lending to small, and medium-sized businesses that don't have access to credit and you crimp the flow of that money, then you actually reduce economic growth. And here's another thing that reduces economic growth. Forward, forward guidance is a is, you know, uh, buzzword of central bankers. They say, we're going to tell the world that we're going to keep interest rates very low for a long period of time. And they believe that that is actually stimulative to economic behavior. It's actually the reverse. Because the whole point of fiscal monetary stimulus is to stimulate behavior today rather than tomorrow. The example I gave before in monetary policy. But fiscal does the same. Whether it's a short-term tax credit, uh, it's one-time checks to people, it's cash for clunkers that we had in the US post-GFC, it's um, home buying tax credit, it's trying to pull forward economic behavior well if if monetary policy is we're just going to keep rates for low forever essentially well then it reduces that sense of urgency to take advantage of those low rates people just sit around and say okay well i don't need to rush because rates are going to stay low so to me keeping rates at zero or negative and just having them stay there is is, is actually anti-growth type policies because People aren't incentivized to go out and 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 take advantage of that because there's no rush to.
0: Yeah, I heard Mike Green made a similar argument. To be honest, I didn't fully understand it. It seemed really complex. But his in his opinion, the lowering at certain threshold, the lowering at certain interest rates doesn't actually reduce and or in, in increase the the uh, the economic expansion. It, it it leads to the stalemate. I think this is where we are at now. Right now, I well, yes, yeah, stalemate.
1: It and and I believe and actually restricts economic growth so yeah I'd go even one step yeah. further for him but I, I agree on his premise
0: what do you think would be needed in order to come out of this scenario so we have this the basing of the basing of the currency the dollar definitely right so definitely in historic perspective we have lots of asset price bubbles that we've seen over the years and we we we've, we feel like the amount of opportunities that is available to young generation that might be a slightly different reason but we have all these zombie companies and we have very little opportunities for the 20 and 30 year olds yes they can make some money and there's the gig economy but building a career and raising a family is almost impossible at least in lots of lots uh, of places in the u.s there is places where it's cheap enough and also jobs are plentiful if you take this into account how w- and you would be able to steer the direction of the fed and also, maybe what the federal government does, what would you suggest? What is like top three on your list?
1: Okay, so you're basically asking me if I was J Powell, if I was in J Powell's seat, what would I do? And yeah, what how would you I fix would, it? What, what I would do is, and there's no painful, the painless way out. I, I'd be straight yeah. with that. Uh, just as Paul Volcker uh, basically made that clear that there's no uh, painless way out of, of a high inflation uh, situation, I would start with, let's start with QE. I would say I, we are beginning to taper. We, there, there's no reason why we're buying three-year, four-year, five-year uh, bonds out there you know, uh, in terms of uh, maturities. Uh, it's doing nothing. And we're just throwing more gas on, on, on a fire here with, and, and with no clear transmission to better economic growth. It's just boosting asset prices. So we're tapering. And we're going to taper over the next six months and we're going to end QE. And then after that, we're going to start raising interest rates assuming uh, economic growth and inflation trends are still higher. First of all, I would get rid of the 2% inflation target. Rooting for higher inflation, basically saying we want to raise, you talk about young people. Well, by saying that we want to raise the cost of living, well, that hurts young people the most. Raising the cost of living, that hurts young people the most. So the Fed is, is actually doing damage to, to young people who are just getting a job and are first saving up uh, because they're fighting a higher cost of living, and they're fighting uh, fighting a rising cost of living, uh, thanks to the Fed. So I would junk the two percent uh, inflation target, and I would start raising uh, short-term interest rates. I would do it slow because I don't want to blow anything up, uh, but at least I would start doing it. Then the question is: Is okay at what pr- at what level would you raise interest rates to? And over time, I don't. Bl- I think negative real interest rates, is is the architect of boom and busts. It's the architect of excessive credit growth excessive debt so over time i would say uh we are going to try to keep uh overnight rate uh at around the level of inflation now ideally i wouldn't even be in the business of setting the fed funds rate i would let the market set the, the level of interest rates who am i yeah. who am i to think that i know on a daily basis what the right interest rates should be
0: i cannot that be so I arrogant yeah. to think I, I, that why do we have the Fed in the first place exactly that to your point wouldn't the market come up with a much better you know we, we always marvel at the supercomputer of finding uh, that the that the market the market is you know we have this price information that's perfectly distributed why isn't the why don't we use the market for this i never understood that part
1: well that's right the the, the market the beauty of the market is the market gets things wrong gets things wrong all the time but what the market is able to do is is that when it gets something wrong it quickly adjusts and having the ability to quickly adjust allows us to fix things that, that go off kilter via the market. But most of the time markets constantly, because of that readjustment, gets things a lot more right than wrong. Uh, as opposed to the, thinking that I can price fix the cost of money at the right level without any unintended consequences and we've seen that that has obviously gotten uh, very wrong. Uh, but, yeah, that's, that, that would be part of, of, of this transition is getting out of, set of the Fed, setting the Fed funds rate and just say, OK, maybe the Fed, if there even is a central bank, is to say, OK, I'm just going to be the lender of last resort at, a, at, at the discount rate, which is supposed to be a punitive rate, uh, with collateral, and you'll sort of fill that role. But certainly not in pricing the most important uh, price out there, that being the cost of money. Um, that is when things certainly have gone very much awry.
0: One thing that I guess a lot of people would say immediately is, well, if you do this and you have other central banks in the world who artificially lower their interest rates and their currencies, right? So the dollar would jump to twice the value and basically our exports would fall off a cliff because it would happen like Switzerland, right? It has an artificially too expensive currency because of the euro. And Switzerland for a long time, it still is very concerned that this basically destroys their economy and they have have literally nothing left that's competitive to export and as long as other countries manipulate their currency so much what um what are we to do about it we we basically have to copy this this negative ways to to make your currency artificially cheaper until everyone one day stops right but for the, until that point we have to compete with them and because of that we have to make it as cheap as all the others
1: it, it is a great question uh we obviously are not an island unto ourselves uh but i i like to look at uh, look at japan look at the yen for example it's not just the level of interest rates that determine the level of your currency. It's not just the amount of money printing. I mean, when you look at the Bank of Japan, where they own about half the JGB market, their balance sheet is 130% of GDP. Uh, they've had rates essentially at or near zero, now negative for almost seemingly decades. And the yen, really, at least against the dollar, has really just kind of flatlined over the last bunch of years. You, you think that the yen, would have gone the way of the Zimbabwe currency, uh, considering what the Bank of Japan has done. So it's not just about interest rates. And you look at the U.S., exports are is, are only about 10% of, of the U.S. economy, or actually, you know, total trade. So if anything, we are a consumer-dependent economy. A strong currency would actually help a consumer-driven economy because it would raise our purchasing power. So I don't think uh, a strong dollar would, would necessarily have... Uh, a negative impact in the US economy. Now, I'm not looking for a strong dollar um, per se. To me, what's best is stable currencies. Uh, but to your point about, well, if if they have negative interest rates and all this QE and they're trying to suppress their currency, what does that mean? Well, look at the euro. Uh, the euro, they have negative interest rates uh, all the way out, market driven out to you know 10 plus years in certain countries. And the euro tr- hangs in great against the dollar. Uh, when, when Europe fr- they, they, now, no question that the ECB was successful in lowering the euro from about 140 to as low as 105 via their, their policies. But after continuing it and ramping it up, the euro hasn't broken. Uh, so it's more than just the currency. It's also deficits. It's also where's your current account deficit. We have a large current account deficit out there. Uh, we have record trade deficits as, as a piece of that. We have exploding budget deficits. Well, Europe has a current account surplus. Uh, Japan its current account surplus. China has current account surplus. So uh, we we would still we we would still possibly have these um, even with with a, with a bounce in the dollar. Uh, now I would hope that if I was chairman of the Fed and I started to implement these policies that that maybe some of these other countries would, would learn lessons and maybe follow as opposed to just staying where they are. But you know, we're, we're, when you, getting back to the example of, of that runaway freight train, I mean, you look at Europe. How is Europe going to ever get out of negative interest rates without blowing up the European bond market? I mean, just, just taking their, their deposit rate from minus 50 to zero would, 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 have, would evaporate you know, trillions of dollars of losses. Uh, For all the people that that own these bonds on a mark-to-market basis, but or or, or is Europe just going to
0: be in negative interest rates forever? I I grew up in Germany, and from what is my gut feeling, and that's obviously just an observation, is that the current structure of the European Union won't survive this, as you say, coming out of negative interest rates. If you really try to, what's going to happen there is that these economies will go their own way and we know where Germany will go. You know, It's a very hard currency and they're still able to compete with this. They have actually shown it. They can have one of the hardest currencies for 20, 30 years and we're still able to run a surplus in their exports forever. But most of the economies in Europe don't have that idea and they are not ready to compete that way. And I think we, we see this already that they're being dragged down by the, by the policy that basically Germany and the way Germany runs their economy, it has created a lot of trouble on all the... Peripheral uh, places in the European Union, and I'm, there will be more than one one Greece, right? There will be Spain, there will be Italy, and sooner or later they they split apart, and I think then they solve that problem, right? So Japan's uh, not Japan, Italy's rate will go back to ten percent where it used to be historically, and maybe eight percent for Spain. I think that would be my most likely scenario.
1: Yeah, I, I struggle with that because I, th- I think on paper the euro is a good concept. I mean, here you have all these countries yeah. that have this tremendous amount of trade together. And how great would it be if we just had one currency? We wouldn't have to worry about currency fluctuations on a daily basis by doing business together. So I think on paper, uh, it, it it made a lot of sense. I think where it went awry I call it German is...
0: imperialism. Though, when you think of it, it really exaggerates German strength and makes it harder for everyone else to catch up. Well, there is a chance. Maybe it's a glo- It's a it's a bigger domestic market. But look at it. How historically german companies were able to exploit such markets and spanish companies rarely had that opportunity or had the ability let's put it this way maybe the opportunity that was plenty but not the ability so i felt there's a bit bit of economic german imperialism sooner or later will fall apart right i mean they created tons of infrastructure right so that it goes both ways
1: yeah I, i i agree with that because it took away the ability of spain and greece and italy to devalue their currency to better compete against and against, against Germany, uh, but over time, relying on currency devaluation is not really uh, the best way of, of 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 growing your economy on a real basis and and growing the standard of living and the quality of life of your of your people. Constantly de- you know, de- devaluing your
0: currency. I hope uh, the Fed gets this message one day. So, <laughs> well, it, it,
1: it, unfortunately, um, yeah, I was I was I thought that after uh, the financial crisis uh, driven by having low rates for too long was a lesson to be learned but rather than learning that lesson uh, the fed thought that maybe they didn't do they, they weren't easy enough and they just they continue central banks just keep doubling down on the same policy expecting eventually a different result and what happens is they keep digging a hole deeper and deeper and deeper to the point where The rope is not long enough to pull them out, and uh, I think that that's the situation that we're in right now.
0: One other opportunity to solve this quandary, a lot of people put forward to say, well, this time technology is different, right? So we will see not just the rise of technology, we know what AI is capable of. We don't know if it's going to materialize its way, but it, it can grow. GDP by by several hundred percent easily in the next 20 years if only one of those scenarios comes true. So a lot of people argue, well, technology this time is different because a it's bigger than ever before. We hear about the singularity, and b most of the growth will actually be where the data scientists are will be more likely in the developed economies. So developed economies will grow strongest six seven eight nine percent, while developing economies will lag behind. Do you think that's a scenario you you share? Because I'm getting drawn to this instinctively. I don't have a ton of good data for it.
1: Well, let's look at growth to begin with. It's population, it's the size of your labor force, the growth of your labor force plus productivity. So basically what that is implying is that productivity growth will accelerate with a lot of this technology. But my viewpoint on technology is, it's not a, it's not revolutionary, it's evolutionary. Like I said earlier in this interview, we've been seeing forms of technology in the since the, the, the history of mankind. We've seen technology of all different kinds. And just over the last hundred years, you know, we had the car that that replaced the the, the the buggy whip, and we had the radio, and then we had the TV, and we had the telephone. I mean, when you think about the telephone, uh, you think the greatest invention of all time, or the airplane, where you can get from point A to point B, and and, and I mean, th- just unbelievable. And and wow, a car replacing the horse and buggy, just technology, just it just it always happens, and. So every new form of technology is just building on what came before it. So is it going to make us more productive? Well, the productivity numbers in the U.S. over the last 10 years have been pr- pretty pathetic with incredible uh, companies uh, making our lives seemingly more productive. But it's, it's a question of how you define productivity. Is, is Facebook and spending two hours like checking out you know, your friends' Instagram pictures, is that pr- productive not really is me being able to go into Google and, and search something up and getting an answer rather quickly. Yeah, that can, that's pretty productive, but you know, me shopping on online. Yeah, that's pretty productive because I saved myself a trip to the store, but in, in the aggregate, um, uh, yeah, I think we'll be more productive in, in from a technology perspective, but in the aggregate, I don't know if we're going to see uh, an acceleration more than what we've already seen. Uh, because, getting back to the fed we, we have a lot of drags on on productivity talk about the government the government creates a lot of drags on productivity let's take the banking sector post financial crisis i think there's about 30,000 compliance people that work for jp morgan compliance people are not productive but tens of they thousands tell you otherwise <laughs> yeah tens of thousands yeah. now work at jp morgan let alone the tens of thousands that work at all these other banks just to deal with the, you know the regulatory uh, laws that are on the books, post-financial yeah. crisis. Uh, central bank policy creates a lot of zombie companies uh, that everyone gets to live another day through easy money. Well, a lot of zombie companies uh, create a lot of unproductivity uh, because capital is not going to its best uses, and companies uh, the good ones aren't as profitable as they should be, and are therefore less productive. So, if the private economy was left to its own devices, I would say, yeah, we can see an acceleration of productivity, but uh, th- there are drags on it uh, through central bank policy and government regulation. Whether you whether you agree yep. with it or not, it's still a, it's still a fact.
0: No, I, I I'm with you. What a lot of people put forward, and Peter Thiel has recently also uh, I think argued this way. Is that he was initially pointing this out? There's been a bunch of white papers. We had this very low productivity growth that started to decline in the 70s. It was really strong in the 50s, 60s, 70s, early 70s. And maybe we are now reversing to the mean. And that could be the next 20 years. And that would push us quite nicely. Um, if it's enough, it's a good question. I we all hope, I guess. Yeah. And we, 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 we can consider all this money that we are printing is basically loan to ourselves and make ourselves more productive. Will it happen? Nobody knows, right? We know afterwards. That's always the problem. But that's well, keep,
1: keep my, what, what a loan is. A loan is just allowing you to do something today that you would have done tomorrow.
0: Yeah. But this could, when I when I say I get it, I invent a creative device and do it today. It's better than I invented than Compared to me inventing it in 20 years from now when I have the money finally for this. Yeah, for but sure. Say enough money. Yeah. Um, well, a lot of people also say this inflation is basically the easiest way for us to increase taxes because U.S. with all its troubles to bring a higher tax rate, big question there, but say our tax rate is internationally pretty competitive, it's not as good as say Eastern Europe, but it's much better than Western Europe, for instance, or Japan. We, we use inflation as a, as a throwaway tax rate that we can easily steer. Do you concur with this?
1: Well, in, inflation as a tax is not something that, that government uh, directly collects. Uh, you mentioned, you know, the corporate tax rate, you know, at least in the U.S., we, we we like to look at the federal corporate tax rate, but every state also has corporate tax rates. So you really need to look at the state and the federal corporate tax rate. And the U.S., even with the, with the cut down to 21 percent, is still very much middle of the road when you look at, you know, effective tax rates. Uh, you know, I know, I know there's a big discussion now on, on raising the corporate income tax rate. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's not really companies that pay it. They pay it directly, but uh, it's really the rest of us that pay the corporate income tax rate because uh, it means either lower wages or higher prices uh, to their consumer. So that's who really pays uh, the corporate income tax rate. And inflation, it ends up being those that are least able to afford it, uh, um, ends up getting impacted the most through higher inflation. I mean, inflation is a tax. Just anytime you hear inflation, anytime you hear uh, the Fed saying we want a 2% inflation, that means they want a higher tax on you. Uh, They want a higher cost of living on you. Um, So I think people need to uh, put that into context.
0: If you look out and see all our problems that we have here undoubtedly, what countries come to mind where you feel like well, they they have their Shit together, they know what they're doing. They have learned over time and they, they are maybe in a different phase of this debt cycle. I know Ray calls it a big cycle and we're probably at the end of it. What, what countries should we look at that know what they're doing?
1: It's uh, a tough question because uh, knowing what they're doing is, can be very subjective. Uh, I mean, if Correct. you just look at like economic policy, I mean, I think the best economic policy is, is stable policy. Uh, where business I was about to say no policy. Right. Uh, that th- th- at least know like, uh, what the playing field is, so to speak, in a competitive fashion. Competitive uh, in terms of re- regulatory structure, competitive in terms of a tax structure. And, and I like to look at Singapore. Now, Singapore is a country of only 7 million people. I know you interviewed Jim Rogers who lives there. Uh, but there's a level of stability there uh, on the corporate side and the individual side that creates a, a background for economic growth. Uh, you look at South Korea. But
0: it's essentially a socialist country. A lot of people don't know that. So there's socialized housing. The currency is being messed yeah. with all the time. Well, that,
1: that that's why your question was very subjective because no yeah. country uh, in the aggregate does it. You know, it, there, there, there's no libertarian utopia out there. It it yeah. doesn't exist. It, it, it's just it's it's a matter of degree in between that utopia and full on North Korean Cuban communism. Everybody else yeah. is just in the middle. So your question is basically who's close, who, who's on one end of the spectrum relative to the others. And um, there's no one really that close to that end of the spectrum. Now, Hong Kong, you could have argued before China essentially took them over in many ways you know, was closer in terms of having uh, a low tax rate on the individual side, the corporate side, the capital gains side, where I don't even know if there is a capital gains tax in Hong Kong. And, and look at the development of Hong Kong over the past 30 years. Look at the development of Seoul, Korea over the past 50 years relative to North Korea. So it's really just a, a matter of degree, but, uh, you know, there's no libertarian utopia where there's sort of this doing it right type uh, environment.
0: Yeah, I always wonder about this because obviously being libertarian and leaning towards this is very popular the last ten years for good reasons, right? I I fully agree with some of the the the, the points that libertarians make, but I feel like the, the the problem with that is that if if you end up in this anarcho-capitalism, so to speak, right? That's like one extreme of libertarianism. It's obviously very far out. You kind of end up like like many countries in Africa, right? But where there is supposedly a certain kind of state system in place, but it's basically all bogus, right? It doesn't really exist. There's tribes, there's people who do whatever they want. There's a lot of individual freedom, which is great on the ground, but there isn't much of real corporations. Corporation, societal corporation is very low. So competition is certainly there, but there is, it, everyone ends up with a lower productivity than they should have, let's put it this way. And so the, the country looks that way too, from my point of view.
1: Well, in, in Africa, there's also an enormous amount of corruption. Uh, if sure. you want some i mean th- th- that that that's just part of their their economy in many of the countries there
0: it's just part but of so their economy. China and China is taking off like like never before
1: right but it, it, it there's there's the, 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 the getting back to the gr- degree thing, there's a degree of corruption it seems like in many african countries the only way to do business is is through corruption and and and, and, and it is to bribe the local official if you want that permit and uh, yeah. uh it seems like that that's just part of the culture and that that certainly doesn't lead to productivity and productive growth because uh, the, 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 the business doesn't go to the, the best
0: operators. It goes to who can bribe the officials the most. Yeah, yeah, that's certainly one aspect of it. Um, you you also were and correct me if that's wrong. You you were definitely bullish and you probably still are on gold and silver. They both haven't done so well lately in the last six months, so to speak. Why, if we we all acknowledge that inflectation expectations or fears have definitely tripped up, why hasn't that impacted gold and silver?
1: Well, with with full context, in twenty twenty, silver was up forty two percent and gold was up twenty five percent, and they were up even more than that into last August highs when gold got above two thousand at a record high, and silver got close to, you know, around thirty dollars an ounce. So. With that backdrop, we've seen, of course, a pullback because we've seen a modest rise in real rates, and we've seen uh, a slight bounce in the dollar, and then we've also had Bitcoin, you know, sucking a lot of oxygen out of the precious metal room. Now, I'm not, I'm not a believer of this either-or that some people like to say it's got to be Bitcoin It's going to take away from gold and silver. Uh, they can all complement each other, just as A tech investor is not saying should I buy Facebook or Google, they buy both. And they're not saying shall I buy one semiconductor and not the other, they buy both. And Fang is not just picking one of the letters and buying it, you buy it all. And if gold and silver are going up for for a reason that Bitcoin shares, then they can all go up. And uh, I, I, I think that that will eventually be the case where they'll they'll trade together because they're they're responding to the same macro factors. Uh but at least for the last six months, gold and silver have really traded off the real rate direct move and the currency move, uh where Bitcoin has just, you know, been uh, a, a cult. Uh it's funny, I laugh when uh people would look down and say, You're a gold bug bug. And that would be looked down upon. But you know, we're, we're now filled in world of Bitcoin bugs and that's just that's now a badge of honor. Uh, I'm fine with Bitcoin. I, I, I respect it. And, and, and I think that it has its place uh, in a world of, of what we talked about, zero rates, negative rates, money printing and so on. Uh, but it's not the only asset that has uh, a limited supply. Gold, the discovery of gold is going up only about two percent a year. Which is pretty much what the supply of bitcoin is now bitcoin will will be capped at some point but that's not for a while down the road a baseball card printed in 1968 is is of limited supply they're not making any more there's only a finite amount out there and there's even a smaller amount out there that is in high condition so bitcoin is not again not the only uh limited supply of 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 something that can be considered a hard asset even though it's obviously more it's digital and it's not physical.
0: It seems like Bitcoin could be replaced by just another coin. I think you mentioned it on another podcast, like the next day. There was this whole debate about Dogecoin, which has shares a lot of similarities to the early Bitcoin movement, and it could become the next Bitcoin tomorrow. People argue One one thing that I was curious with Bitcoin is how much higher can it go? So we, we know the market caps of gold is pretty high, right? Of all the gold that we know in this world how much when we apply a similar sense and say oh it could be maybe half the size of gold why did you run the calculations how many times can we see doubling of of bitcoin is five times ten times
1: well i mean i i think that you're making the right calculation in the sense that the the bitcoin bulls they say that it should be half of the market cap of gold or a full market cap but you know the one issue with, with that calculation is is that the, the, one of the biggest holders in the world of, of of gold is our central banks and it's used as as a reserve uh that they hold and unless bitcoin can can establish that sort of presence i don't i don't get the the the, the calculation of 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 making it a percentage of of, of gold because gold has that that usage um so, but we'll see. I mean, Bitcoin can go much higher. It, it, it's it's throwing a dart. I mean, that's the thing with Bitcoin, but you can also make the claim of gold is that when people ask me what I think of Bitcoin, I think you know, Bitcoin can be here forever. I just don't know where it should be priced. Uh, should it be 50,000, 500,000, five million or should it be 50 bucks? I don't know. When we get to 21 million coins at some point in the in the far away future. Uh, and it just trades like anything else. It's got its it can trade like a closed end fund. It, yeah. Like a close in front of anything. There's a finite amount of shares outstanding and it just trades wherever. Uh,
0: Reminds me of 2000 I when, when I spoke to people there and I asked them, so where should Yahoo trade? And they're like, well, I really don't know. It could be like uh, 100,000 or it could be bankrupt tomorrow. I'm like, okay, that was very helpful. Right? But there is much, not much you can do. right? Once we in this bull run, there's not much you can do to predict it. Unless you well, really predict it day by day or week by week
1: right we, we know it's, it's a lot easier to try to predict the valuation of a cash flow generating entity a cash flow generating business where you can yep. at least model that out uh... trying to figure out what the price of a gold coin is or a bitcoin is or uh... a baseball card or a piece of art you know a lot of times is a lot more subjective and uh... is, is a lot more um, determined by just what the state of mind is on that particular debt Between buyer and seller.
0: Peter, I know your time is valuable and you got to go. I have one last question for you. When when we take all of this into account and the the view that you share or that that talked about on a macroeconomic view, what would you invest the individual? What would you, an individual investor, what would you suggest they position themselves with? Is it more gold? Is it more silver? Is it Bitcoin? How? adventurous and how bullish should people be at this point?
1: Well I, I think from a, a evaluation perspective it's hard to find cheap assets. I mean, it's uh, uh, They're out there but uh, it's harder of course. Uh, I manage two portfolios for clients. Um, one in particular is a global macro so uh, to sort of answer that question I do think uh, an allocation to gold and silver is is, is definitely prudent. We don't own Bitcoin for clients. We let clients make that choice themselves uh, for some right now regulatory reasons, but that will change at some point. But I still don't know whether um, I'm going to have that as part of my portfolio. Right now, I'm comfortable with gold and silver, uh, sort of capturing yeah. that monetary asset. Uh, I am bullish on. There's plenty of energy. ETFs.
0: I just want just to add yes. tons of ETFs, right? It's easy to invest mm-hmm. into these days. You don't have to actually buy physical gold unless you really right. want yep, to.
1: Yep, for sure. Uh, I'm bullish on agriculture stocks, uh, energy stocks industrial metals, particularly copper, uh, uranium, I'm actually very bullish on. Uh, and looking out over time, you know, one of the key pieces of one's investing success is the time horizon. Uh, those that have a lot, a large long-term time horizon can better block out a lot of short-term noise and can better weather uh, volatility that always comes with markets. And when I look out over the next 10 years and I say, where where in the world am I going to get uh, some good return? And it always, I keep... Drawing myself to Asian markets, uh, last ten years it's been the U.S. market that's been the dominant international market in terms of re- returns, and I think it's going to be Asia when looking at over the next ten years. Whether it's China, India, I mentioned Singapore, South Korea, Indonesia, Taiwan. Uh, this is where I want to have uh, exposure to Vietnam, uh, a, a, a another one. Uh, so I'm very bullish on on Asia, and I have a, a decent position in not just some country ETFs uh, covering. Uh, these 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 countries, but also individual companies uh, that will also benefit. I'm also bullish on travel. I think that Covid was just a temporary um, factor impacting travel, but leisure travel is an unstoppable force as the world ages, as uh, we see a growing middle class in in the emerging world where these where a lot of people want to travel uh, more and they want to see parts of the world. Uh, i think that is uh, an unstoppable trend so asian related equities i think with an asian focus i think is very attractive uh, a lot of the leisure and hospitality at least in the us have obviously had this very sharp rebound uh with uh, you know with with the, with the vaccine rollout so i think a lot of those stocks have already priced in a lot of the the good news now um, and then uh so i say, i say, i guess the bottom line the the, the portfolio exposure its inflation exposure uh, Metals, commodities—they're value stocks that, that that I that I like. Um, that I don't believe are value traps. Or at least I hope they're not. And having—I don't hear any tech in your,
0: in your portfolio, correct? Uh,
1: no, not now. Um, to me, tech—you uh, know—tech is obviously a lot within that word. But uh, tech is not where the value is, and I'm more of a value investor. And I think the the returns for tech, yeah. while the companies will do fine, uh, I think a lot of the valuations have discounted a lot of it. That, that that good news. So uh, I'd rather buy tech on, on uh, on on, on cheaper valuations, which I think we'll get at at some point as we always do, but at, at least not yet.
0: Yeah. Well, with this positive note, Peter, thanks for doing this. Really appreciate you coming on. It's awesome.
1: Thanks. I, I really appreciate having me on. All
0: right. Take All it right. easy. Talk soon. Thanks so much. Bye, Talk soon. Bye bye.